In 1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. So for episode two of season five, we're picking up an interview actually recorded last spring, would have been in May, um, when I had the opportunity, connected with a couple other groups, um, but well, this was just myself and some friends, to head to Oxford University. Ooh, so fancy. Which is at Oxford. (laughs) Is it? (laughs) And uh, (laughs) so I'm an interview, uh, someone who's fairly well known, this, this, he's, he's spoken to like, um, uh, all these neo-atheists, right? Yeah, like Richard, Richard Dawkins, Dawkins and others, and, and yeah. has had some kind of famous debates and the rest. And, but it brings up a field that as soon as I say this word, might have a bit of an emotional or... Warning. Uh, the field of apologetics <laughs> in Christian faith. Does I'm it make sorry. you do that? It does. I don't have So what's your concept of apologetics and what it has meant? I mean, you grew up, you were in youth you group. You go first, the, Amanda. You were in youth group in the 90s. I sure was. So... I don't know. Were you part of things that were like, here's how you prove your faith, or here's how you... Of course I was, because I was part of youth group in the 90s. That kind of evangelicals (sighs) youth group subculture. Yeah, just the whole in the world, not of the world, but like, just the way you live your life. So what did apologetics mean in your understanding then? Like, how you defend your faith? Yeah, down to almost like a scientific level, right? right? Like, uh, you have to be able to explain everything. And all you need is the Bible, actually, um, because it explains everything, which actually, in hindsight, makes absolutely no yeah, sense whatsoever. Way. The logic doesn't hold up. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But, but you, you it, also it had just, kind of a negative... I mean, because in in what I... In the context in which I grew up in, like, I, I remember, like, Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, yeah. where it was, like, this yeah, huge thing that was apologetic. held up that he, you know, went out to disprove Christianity and end up, ended up converting... And there was very much the presumption that Christianity is um, rational and it can be argued for, it can be explained. And in some ways, those things, I believe, are true to a degree. Um, and, and I mean, just off the, the bat, the interview with, with John Lennox, I think that his perspective on apologetics is better than the perspective that I well, received. He would, he would have been through all that era, though. Like, he's not... Yeah, by, by I mean, I can standard. remember sitting in like so, alpha classes where it almost got combative. Well, and that's if the somebody thing that asked a question. really turned me off a lot mm-hmm. about apologetics is it, much of what I observed that was promoted as apologetics or understood as apologetics. Um, it ended up being that you would have this Christian large. It was always men. That's the only ones I saw, at least. Maybe there were women, but I don't know. Um, and it was... The, the point of it was, it was a debate style in which you would have a winner and which you would have a loser. <laughs> Going losers, back to episode yep. one. Um, back to losers. And so, like, the, the mentality was, what I experienced was you would try to humiliate the other partner 
to make them look stupid. You win an argument. It and just, it within, felt from us the Christian and them. side, yes, yeah, very much so. It was that intense division of us and them. Hmm. And from the Christian um, side, it was always, if you don't believe in this, it's because you're stupid. You're like, it is rational. And there are ways in which I think that there, there can be ways in which you can explain Christianity in, in terms. But one of the things that I always felt frustrated by with apologetics is it seemed really harsh and very combative. And it wasn't, I did not experience it as, as kindness and loving towards the other people mm. that they would be arguing a, against. I think what it, where my pause is when you ask me like, what's my um, experience of it? Like the words apologetic, apologetics weren't used. So it actually took me a long time to even understand. Yeah, what, yeah, yeah. Right. It's not like we defined it. Like now we're going to enter into some apologetics and yeah, talk about this thing. It's just unpacking the experience of it, of just the... If you express any doubt, uh, okay. the danger of that is yeah. really real. I remember the, you know, there are examples historically, like, you know, C.S. Lewis or whatever. Yep. You use. Mm-hmm. And I remember in the evangelical church, you would get his frame of, of Jesus is either like liar, or lunatic, or, or Lord. Mm-hmm. And yeah. back to your concept, Allison, of like winning and losing. Sometimes there'd be that tendency then, oh, what a brilliant frame. And Obviously, then he must be Lord. So then the person you're talking to or trying to present faith to, like, is given no other space. Like, now, obviously, you have Case to believe closed. now, right? And it's like, well, that's not really how mm-hmm. how yeah. belief works. And you're right. John Lennox, in my interview with him, um, because I think he's known that world of apologetics for sure. He's, mm-hmm. been, you know, and, and people have probably wanted him to act that way. And there might be kind of zingers in conversations or whatever, some of the mm-hmm. things you guys have been saying. Um, but also as he expresses in this interview, when he's talking to people like Richard Dawkins and others, one of the things he says that he's trying to help them to see is that they believe something. Mm -hmm. Whereas they're saying, no, I don't believe anything. I just take what's obvious. And he's like, well, no, no, no. And I think that can be helpful because that again, engages with the other person rather than seeking to kind of defeat Mm -hmm. them or something like that. Right. So I'm still... I I was really appreciative of the conversation and I f- that you had with with John Lennox and I feel like it really helped kind of reframe a few things for me. I'm still feeling a little hesitant about whether the subject of faith is most appropriately put in a debate sphere. I'm not That's a, I'm not sure question. about that because right. I think that like there are certain kind of tenets around debates of how they function and how they're structured mm-hmm. and kind of things that are givens uh, that I'm not convinced is the most helpful way yeah. to have conversations yeah. around faith. Well, yeah, was, the only way I, I think about the, the debate thing is like it more in the, the Jewish context where they debate like oh. scripture and text. And I think but that's the placement for it. those are all people who profess it. the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the right placement well, that's for like it. It's so different. with the other though, not trying to... Yeah, it's, it's different because it's not oppositional. The, so the other thing that happened yeah. at Oxford when I was there, this is more just a personal like travel log reflection. Um, I, I was walking around, and I think, so I was going to Simon Fraser University here in Vancouver in like the late 80s and early 90s. And so That's for those who are listening and don't know Vancouver or Simon Holy Fraser, cow. yeah, it's basically just a bunch of concrete. Bunkers. Especially mm-hmm. back in those days. And yeah. um, lots of gray. And Vancouver can be very rainy. Yeah, and then it, the clouds are like coming against Burnaby Mountain. all the Vancouver uh, like, stereotypes. Like a, I didn't struggle with depression at that time, really, I don't think. Um, but um, but it could be a really depressing place. One, and so Oxford, I'm walking around and kind of 
and England can be like that too, you know, bleak and rainy and whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really old, like medieval kind of feeling <laughs> to it. And I remember I was just walking around going like, oh, people here must be so depressed a lot. I even <laughs> asked, I don't think on mic, but asked John Lennox about it. And he's like, oh yeah, like mental health is a big mm. kind of, uh, it's, and then I was talking to John Swinton, who we've done some work with. He's at Aberdeen in Scotland. And he was, we were talking about, um, you know, how people say mental health is really important. I, and I think I mentioned to him my, da- my dad's favorite line about Air Canada, the airline here in, in Canada, main one, where he says, uh, where, where my dad used to say, Air Canada's slogan should be, we're not happy until you're not happy. Like that would be their honest slogan. <laughs> and John Lennox was saying, yeah, around here in Aberdeen, the University of Aberdeen, he says, there's all these posters and slogans that say your mental health is very important to us. But then the whole structure of the university is kind of it's set up. It's not helpful for that. No. Opposite. So it actually kind of feels like propaganda. Yeah. <laughs> like propaganda well, I mean, posters. it is in a way. Last, yeah. last episode, we talked about Susan Cain and her work in Bittersweet. Bittersweet. She talks about some of this. So I'm just mm-hmm. thinking about Oxford, where she talks about the pressure in university mm-hmm. to, I think Duke University called it, what was it? Effortless perfection. They coined the term in 2003 that originally applied in its application there to just young women, but then they realized, oh, this is something oh, it evolved, that yeah. people are feeling. And then um, Stanford called it duck syndrome. I liked that a bunch of universities had different names different for names. it, but yeah, it was yeah. the same, same thing. Because duck yeah. syndrome was like the duck on the water. Water, water. feet are going underneath, uh, but it doesn't, they yeah, never have to underneath, try. It's like barely, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. And then what was the other one? Oh, University of Pennsylvania just called it pen face. Yeah. Um, yeah, where you have, and that was that famous case, oh, Madison, what's her life, can't remember, but she took her own life, and mm. literally minutes before that, she yeah, posted had, like a happy Instagram. Yeah. yeah. Just amazing, the kind of, uh, and so, uh, yeah, Oxford, I'm sure, like, that's the, where you go to Oxford, you're, you know, you're going to make it in life. Well, you, you have right made it. The, the fact that, that people, have you not, once yeah. you arrive there, like, you've, you've made it, mm. you you got in, which means that everything from there can only be good, right? Well, it didn't Isn't that how feel. That works? I mean, I loved being there. <laughs> we tried to go to, um, we tried to go to the pub that C.S. Lewis and others made kind of, and it was closed because it had some business thing or something like that. So that, but it didn't feel like the happiest place on earth. Well, it's not Disneyland. It's not Disneyland. Or Disney so. World. Well, enjoy the <laughs> conversation with John Lennox. and uh, However you feel about apologetics. However you feel about apologetics. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much. Well, it's fantastic to be sitting here at Oxford University in a lovely office. Um, a joy to be here with Dr. John Lennox and to talk about some really important Important things, but uh, matters of faith and belief and unbelief. And Dr. Lennox, thank you so much for this conversation. I thought maybe a good place to start is to just uh, have you tell us a little bit about yourself. You are writing, well, you write on all kinds of things, but uh, much of the work that you've done that is engaged with our audience has to do with belief and unbelief. You've spoken with very famous neo-atheists, as we say, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and others. Uh, Tell us about yourself, your work, how you got involved in these kinds of conversations. Well, thank you. It's very pleasant to talk to you. My origins help understand why I'm interested in these things. I come from Northern Ireland, which in those days was very sectarian, and there was quite a lot of sectarian violence. And 
I saw the ugly side of religiosity that was not genuine Christian. I was very fortunate in my parents. My father ran what counts today as a small family store in the centre of one of the real black spots for terrorism. And he employed equally from the divided community, Protestant and Catholic, and he got bombed for that. I was going to say that would be an exception. Oh, absolute exception. I asked him why he did it, and he said, I read in the Bible, in Genesis, that all men and women, irrespective of their worldview, are made in the image of God, and I intend to treat them like that. And that taught me a deep lesson of the way to treat other people. That was number one. Secondly, they allowed me to think. They didn't force their Christianity, which was real in their lives, as mm -hmm. I could see from that first point I made. But they gave me space to think and encouraged me to think not only about Christianity, but other worldviews. And when I got to Cambridge in the last century sometime, I was asked almost immediately, how can you as an Irishman, maintain your faith in the light of the violence. And secondly, surely your faith in God is culturally conditioned. It's simply Irish genetics and so on. And that led me to befriend people that didn't share my worldview. Yeah, yeah. Cambridge gave me the opportunity to meet atheists, agnostics, people from other religions and so on. And I spent my life doing that. Deep down, answering the question, is it just a cultural phenomenon yeah. or is it true? And I've come to believe, and I'm a mathematician, a scientist, passionately interested and concerned about science and evidence and all that kind of thing. So through the years, by exposing my own worldview to severe criticism by the likes of Dawkins and Hitchens, yeah. whom you mentioned, it has increased my faith in God and Christ immeasurably. And I see it really as my life's work now, yeah. because I'm 80 this year, to communicate this. In other words, to put out into the public space the rational, reasoned, thoughtful evidence for God and for Christianity and let people make up their own minds rather than impose it on them. So that's where yeah. I sit. That's really interesting. That's the first time I'd heard you share. I mean, I met you in Vancouver when you were there teaching at Regent College. And so it makes sense that I haven't heard the background kind no. of about the shop and such. But it makes me think of your conversations with Dawkins, Hitchens and others um, in this where there, where this sectarianism or polarization comes up again. I would imagine you carry that, and I've seen it actually, but carry that same kind of spirit into conversations with those people that it isn't necessarily about, you know, it's a movement towards them, not a movement to try to like beat them. Or oh, something. absolutely. Yeah. And that's hugely important because the major debates for which I tend to be known, yeah. famous or infamous, right. which are all on the internet yeah. and on my website, johnlennox.org, I, don't go, I didn't go into those debates to win the arguments. I'm interested in winning people in that sense yeah. and making sure that they see that I respect them even though they violently disagree with me and sometimes get very angry and cross with me. But put 
something across that the general public can see and make up their own minds about. Simply wanting to win an argument yeah. tends to make people cut corners and use emotive arguments and false arguments, yeah. actually, just to win points. And I'm not interested in All that. All kinds of straw man arguments. Yes, that's right. Interested I'm interested in, in truth. And therefore, I hope I'm prepared to correct my own ideas uh, as I come into contact with other people. I mean, I'm not asking for, you know, insider information on what so-and-so like or whatever, but I would imagine in this, our shared faith, this would come from a faith perspective on what it means to be human, to move towards people rather than mm -hmm. away from them. I would assume, and I don't mean to disrespect them either, but I would assume that some of those you've spoken with or debated do not necessarily carry the same kind of perspective that so I'm, I'm picturing you trying to relate to them human level human, but that it's not always possible but they might so, want to try to beat you yeah well actually it, it's an interesting mixture there are very few people that i haven't been able to befriend Good. but some of those i have like the late christopher hitchens we got on well, particularly in the private space. He was violent with me in public, which ah. I expected. But in private, he would listen to me and I, I, would, I, I would listen to him. I think the important thing, though, in all of this, you talked about a faith perspective. I contend that everybody has that. Yes. The issue is faith in what? Yes, everybody has and a theology. Yes, yeah. but... It, some atheists find that very difficult to admit that they have their atheism as a belief system, which of course it is. Dawkins once wrote very foolishly that atheists have no faith, and then the entire rest of the book is what he believed. So it's, it's nonsense. But it's because, and here's an important thing, it's because they think that faith is a religious concept Yes. And it means believing where there's no evidence. When faith is an ordinary concept, and it means trust comes from the Latin fides, trust, reliability, and so on. So every single human being has a worldview in which they believe. Some of them have grounds, some of them have no grounds, but it's absolute nonsense for both Hitch and Dawkins to say that atheists have no faith. They're full of it. But if this is their, if this is like the center of their, or key plank in their intellectual understanding and how they present themselves. I could see if you're trying to care for somebody or relate to them or move towards them, that saying to them, you know, you have a faith as well, that the first reaction to that would be to kind of take offense. Well, say, yes, there's a lovely incident uh, in my famous debate with Dawkins in Alabama, uh, the God delusion debate, yes. which was moderated by a, a high court judge in the US. Yes where I, I put it to him, I asked him, did he have grounds for believing in his wife, for trusting his wife? <laughs> That's and right. he said, oh yes. And then he realized that uh, something had gone wrong. And I said, you do believe in evidence-based faith. And then he said, it's not faith, that kind of thing. You have, um, so I read recently um, one of your newer books, I guess a couple of years ago. I think your most recent book, which we'll put on notes and stuff, um, uh, the the biblical principles of work, wealth, and yes. wisdom. Um, good return. A good return, good return. Yes. I don't think it's actually available in Canada yet. I went to... No, it was officially published 
next week. Yeah, so this is... Yeah, but yeah. it is available in the UK. Yeah, okay. I know people that have bought it. Okay, great. So we'll track it down for sure. But given the cultural kind of moment that we're in with artificial intelligence and yes. stuff, I decided in preparation for this to read um, 2084... Um, the future of humanity conversations around uh, artificial intelligence, yes. which in my reading, and I would say this gratefully, wound up to be a book much more about the nature of humanity. Well, of course it is. Yes. That's why I wrote it. Exactly. <laughs> I, was, I was asked to give a lecture on the nature of humanity in light of AI in London to a group of Christian leaders, and I refused, first of all. And then they said, look, we really want you to talk about Genesis and what a human being is. But I started researching and I worked for several years and realized this was hugely important. So it ended up with the book 2084. By the way, the title was suggested by a famous atheist. Oh, really? Yes, <laughs> who's an Oxford colleague. And we were on our way to a debate, a God debate, where he attacked me furiously. Peter Atkins, he's a Oh, world famous physical chemist. Okay. And uh, we didn't talk about the debate in advance, but he asked me what I was writing. So I said on AI, oh, he said, I got a title for you. And, and I said, what's the title? He said, 2084. I said, that sounds good, Peter. If I use it, I acknowledge you. And that's, is I there, do. Oh, yes. Is there a reason he chose that particular year? Oh, well, sure. Because it's 100 years after 1984. 1984 that's George yeah, Orwell's You speak in there a lot of... Um, Oh, Noah Harari, U-Haul Noah Harari. Yes, and, I do, uh, yes. I, I'm really interested in that in your work, how you are able to keep things contemporary and realize. And I think it goes back to the shop. Well, it could be, but it goes back to the fact that I read a lot. You read and a lot, but I, you translate into, yes, the, I do. into well, the cultural moment where years ago, not that long ago, it would be, well, how do I do this in, in relation to Dawkins? In, in, in the AI book, it's... Harari, Dan oh, Brown, yes. right? These, that, really... That's correct, yes, and a lot of other people. Yeah, the, so on that, you start uh, tellingly and well with these, you say humans are insatiably curious and that there are two questions that kind of frame a lot of this curiosity. Uh, where do we come from and where are we going? And then say that this uh, then relates to who we are and how we kind of measure a life, what our goals Correct, are. Correct, yes, absolutely. Um, what, so in terms of the work that we do um, on this podcast and such, and speaking theologically, questions of origin and eschatology. Yes. Why do you see your eschatological understanding and understandings of origin as so much more hopeful than some of the other things you contend with intellectually? I think... The short answer to that is because it gives me a framework, what they would call a meta-narrative these days, big enough to live in and give real hope because what we think about the past determines our identity and what we think about our future determines our expectation or our hope. People commit suicide if they've nothing to live for and if they don't know about their past, they don't know who they are. So it's being sandwiched between an intelligible past and an intelligible future that have got real grounds backing up their credibility. 
and therefore the biblical teaching that this universe didn't create itself, which is a nonsensical concept that some scientists pacify their minds with to get rid of God, I'm afraid. But that the universe has an intelligent creator who created it, not holds it, and therefore gives it a direction. There is a goal. And mm -hmm. human beings, the key statement, and I was very interested listening to Jordan Peterson talking yeah. about that key statement, that God made men and women equally in his own image. And he, when he's lecturing on this, he, he paused and he said, man, he said, that's the cornerstone of civilization. I, image and of we, God. Yes, and we neglected at our peril. So that's the past. And then because we are having so many scenarios presented to us, mainly in science fiction, of course, but now much more within the field of engineering, artificial intelligence and so on, and they become more credible every day. <laughs> the whole question about what does the future hold becomes pretty critical. And therefore, in the center of history, you have the fundamental claim that God, who did the creating, has become incarnate in, in Jesus Christ. And often uh, it can be very hilarious, actually, by conversations when people tell me about the hope that AI brings. That, Isn't for that example, <laughs> artificial general intelligence, that we will be yeah. one day, and this is one scenario, capable of uploading our brains into silicon so that they'll be eternal. And they offer me this as a hope, but I say you're far too late where I'm concerned. And they say, oh, no, it's never too late. This is what we're trying to produce. I say, you misunderstand yeah. me. Because the two problems that Harari isolates as being the agenda for 2020, for this century, uh, solving the problem of physical death yes. and enhancing human happiness, those are his two agenda items. They have been solved. In the sense that 20 centuries ago, Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the God who created the universe. So the problem of physical death has, has been solved. But not only that, he promises everybody that faces the mess that they've made of their own lives and possibly others. The Bible calls it sin, which is a rather unpopular word these days. But we're damaged people and we damage other people. We damage the planet. That if we face that and admit it and trust Christ because of the evidence he's presented in his teaching, his life, his death, his resurrection, then we're in for the best upload there possibly is because the promise is in the future that he will return and raise us from the dead uh, with the life that has already begun in our hearts through receiving him. AI has not anything to offer that's yeah. remotely like that. So I want to tell the AI community about this message and say to them, look, yeah. guys, you are prepared to listen to a whole kaleidoscope or palette of futuristic scenarios that have got relatively little evidence supporting them, particularly the uploading of the brain and so on. Whereas there is a highly credible scenario coming 
uh, from 20 centuries ago, which is presented in the book that many of you have rejected because you don't realize that one can take it seriously without losing your intellectual credibility. And it tells us th what I've just said, that it's possible to have a hope that transcends physical death. And of course, physical death is the thing that ultimately removes hope right. for everybody. Which is why Harari talks about these problems. When I read that in your book, and I've read some Harari as well and encountered there, the AI stuff, and of course this would be, again, because we share a faith that, and so I try to hear it, how does this sound to people who, who don't you know, believe what I believe and respecting them? Uh, those things sound so dystopian to me. Oh, they, they are. The but what encourages me and gives me another kind of hope is that the secular world has responded very positively to my book. Yes. I get phone calls and emails from people saying, look, I've read most of the books on AI and yours is different. You've got a different perspective. Very much. And I like to interview you. And things like that are not only coming from the West, but from the East, from China. Oh. Last week I had an invitation. So I'm quite encouraged because in spite of the fact that there's a lot of doom and gloom around, even in the AI scenarios, yes. they're frightened of it at the yeah, moment. They're all talking about and that. And they want to impose a moratorium on it because they're worried that they're losing control. It's ironic, you know, there's a mathematician, I believe, who's written uh, and said that the original creation, I'm not sure if she's a believer in God or not, but she said, the problem with the original creation was that God lost control of the creature he'd made. Our problem is exactly the Here same. We, go. we might lose control. And the so-called control problem is what Elon Musk and Jan Tallinn and all these yeah. brilliant people, Peter Norvig, are concentrating yeah. on and is why they want a moratorium. Well, and it seems so evident when, you, when I read those articles alongside your book and think their fear is that this would... would you know, be inhumane, that, that it, it's not, it has no recognition of humanity. Well, of course it hasn't. It, it yeah. is the, the most important thing to realize in all of this is that artificial intelligence means what it says. It's not real intelligence. It's only simulation. And uh. the, one of the top experts, Peter Norvig, uh, really agreed with Alan Turing, who's the father of all yeah. of this stuff, and saying, look, it's not important that we try to reproduce consciousness. Well, of course, they've no idea what <laughs> consciousness is. So there's no likelihood of uh, reproducing it. All we want to do is play and play very well the simulation game. In other words, it's artificial. It simulates what normally requires human intelligence. Yeah. That is where we're at today. But they want to do it so well, it's much faster, much cleverer, much more information. And they've got there in several areas, particularly with chat GPT-4. Yeah. I'm interested too in, you referenced earlier um, in, in getting us to this place, the the imaginative you know, understanding that is real, that uh, some of these, some of these people wanted to get rid of God, so they do this kind of, and, and 
the nature of atheism or how belief and unbelief exist. I could see myself, like I'm here, we're in Oxford. We go by the monument where these people were burned because yes, they believed the right. wrong thing or they're just down the street here, right? Well, they believe the right thing, actually. Yeah, but <laughs> not according to the people who no. did the burning. Um, and so there is this, some of it I'm, I'm thinking through how it would make sense to me to want to get rid of that God. Oh, yeah, sure. And so it's, it's a lot of what you I have a friend, Richard Topping. He's at Vancouver School of Theology, the president there, a great guy. Um, and he says in his conversations, a Presbyterian uh, minister as well. And he says, you know, when he's talking to people who don't have Christian faith and they're doing some of the, you know, the conversations you have, he says, well, tell me about, tell me about the God you don't believe yes, in. Yes. And they, you do the same thing. Well, that irritates many people. That certainly irritated Dawkins when uh, I faced uh, him with Yeah, because then he responds with, well, I don't believe in that God either. Yes. So some of this impulse to get rid of that God, we identify with. Of course, because one of the huge problems within the atheist community is they've got no concept of who God is beyond pagan gods. Mm -hmm. And of course, Christianity will get rid of those. It's easy to get rid of those. And yeah. looking at the culture today, what has happened in the West is we are going back to a very similar place that pagan Rome was in when Christianity first appeared. Mm, that's interesting. That's a provocative <laughs> statement, of course. But it is the fact we are paganism in all its forms, and our intellectual world is full of deities, but we don't make statues to them. But we do believe that the four fundamental forces of nature are the controllers of destiny. And the ancient gods were simply deifications of those forces. We don't call them gods anymore, but we might as well. Yeah. And there's not a hairspread yeah. difference intellectually between, and that's why I wrote yeah. my book on Daniel, by the way, between oh, makes sense. the worldview of ancient Babylon and ideologically and the worldview of many of my colleagues in this university. Wow. Well, that's another story. The, uh, the, uh, I'm still on this, uh, something in impersonal terms now, what it is that people are arguing against sometimes. And, and the more intense an argument becomes, and I'm coming from pastoral ministry. And yes, so sure. You, you see somebody who's really lashing out, or who, yes. and I'm often asking myself, who are they actually upset at? It's not me, like often, sometimes. And what are they upset about? And what, yes, and sure. what, is, what is hurt? What is caused I hurt? think the pastoral dimension is hmm. virtually as important as the intellectual dimension. If people are lashing out, I was once taught by an Irish farmer, if a person can't see reason, then reason isn't their problem. Oh, that's fantastic. That saves a lot of wasted energy. Yeah, and it, I, you know, to, to, um, to give it a big smart word, I guess, uh, I, and I, it's, it's ignorance more than anything. I've read, I, I tried to read God Delusion. I didn't find it super, like I didn't, it didn't stay with me, but I read um, Dawkins, uh, what's it called? Greatest, it's his biological thing, greatest greatest show on earth or something. Oh like. yes, that, and, yes. And when I read that, I actually, I, I found some of that quite compelling. And it made oh, me go. He's a very good writer. He's telling me what he believes. Yes, he is. He's actually this is kind of like there's like this a, is a faith statement. There's a hymn in here. He he's is. writing a hymn. He is. A hymn. And and so then I'm like, but why is he always so 
always so upset that I believe. Yes. And, and it, it got me to thinking, and it's projection on my part. To think, I thought, I'm sure very many people have done this. Where have you been hurt yes, in your well, background? Where have you been? That, the answer to that is still not clear. And this, this, so the concept I had for it is from Ivan Illich. This, people pick up illnesses <laughs> in church the way they can pick up illnesses in hospitals. So it's like iatrogenic in terms of medicine is the term. You go to a hospital for something yeah. on your leg, you get an infection, you ha then you have to be treated for that. Some of what people seem to have pushed away from in spiritually and intellectually that they've experienced in the church, it makes perfect sense. So this, what I'm asking is the nature of belief and unbelief. My belief includes, and I don't want to, I'm certainly not atheist in that regard, but my belief includes at points letting go of belief, moving, that I used to see things this way. Oh, sure. And uh, now I think what you need to insert into that is letting go of belief in what? Yeah, okay. They, they, problem in the conversations of this type is that belief is a general word but often it's used as shorthand for belief in a religion or belief in god and then it gets confused because well for example science yeah. is a faith-based yes enterprise not faith in god but as einstein said long ago he couldn't imagine a genuine scientist without that faith by which he meant that if you're going to do any science, you must believe that science can be done. You must believe that the universe is rationally intelligible, in fact, mathematically intelligible. And if you don't believe that, you will never do any science. So scientists have their credo. And I spend a lot of time trying to get this across to people because they will insist that the only people that have faith are religious people. And that's absolute yeah. nonsense. That is their faith and is blind. So, yeah, I see that letting go of belief in what? These things. And yes, some of that. I, in... I've let go belief in Zeus. Yeah. yeah. If you see what I mean. Yeah. And you don't believe in exactly the same way that previous generations. Not No, because the, there yeah. is progress in understanding yeah. and all this kind of thing. That is absolutely true. But the crucial question to ask of any belief is. First of all, what do you believe? And second, why do you believe it? What are the grounds for it? The, um, so to kind of bookend our conversation, we started it with um, origins and eschatology. Um, we, you know, the group I work with has a number of little sayings. You referenced a little bit one that resonates. Um, one is uh, the future determines the present. It's kind of a broad like the, what you think of the future determines how yeah, you I live would put in the it present. slightly differently. I would say you cannot live for the present. You can live in the present for the future. Yeah, it gives it the, yeah. And so you must have a future to live for. That's where hope comes from. And the hopeless, you see, in biblical language, hope by definition is my expectation for the future. That's what it means. And, and therefore, we can ask people, what is your expectation for the future? And many people don't have that. Or it's dark. Or it's very dark and dystopic. Yeah. The, um, and, and in some ways, I think, so I'm trying to you know, care for my friends and others who, who reject Christian faith. Yes. And um, that if, if a Christian faith 
if what is presented to them as Christian faith is a, is a story of darkness to them as well, then... Oh, absolutely. And many people have been put off by misrepresentation yeah. of Christianity or being burnt by pseudo-Christianity. Amen. That happens, sadly, a great deal. And the only answer to that is to show them friendship and show them that not all professing Christians are like that. I often say to people, you know, that the existence of false coinage or yeah. false C money, yeah. false currency, doesn't mean that the real stuff doesn't exist, but it can make it hard to find. Oh, I love that. That's fantastic. <laughs> That gets me to the last kind of question that would be um, our obvious shared faith. And, and uh, I can see it even in our brief interaction here, um, your welcome and hospitality, your uh, sense of not knowing me, having we've met briefly, but it was in a larger context. Um, it's, it's not saying that people who don't believe our faith can't be welcoming and loving, and of course they can. Well, of course they but, can, but because, the, and there's a reason for that, which is very important. It's the same reason that we should respect them, whatever they believe, is that they're made the image of God. Amen. Uh, often I get asked, do you believe an atheist can do good things, you see? And I say, well, of course, it would be insulting to suggest not. And indeed, within scripture, sometimes uh, people who were held up as examples of what it means to trust God, were rebuked by pagans, like yeah. Pharaoh rebuked uh, yeah. Abraham, yeah. that kind of thing. That we must realize that because we're made in the image of God, we have this capacity to do good. Otherwise, society would simply collapse. Yeah. And it goes back to why you're saying people like West and East calling you after this, connecting with you. I think it likely has to do with the fact that you write more about humanity there. Well, than, absolutely. Which is... Which is because people have found that the rationalist approach, the purely nerdy scientific approach <laughs> to life has not given them meaning. And there's a deep search for meaning. Do you feel Who here in Oxford? Everywhere. Who am I? Uh, Where am I going? Where did I come from? These are the questions that give us meaning. And you see, science doesn't deal with that. Yeah. That's the deception yeah. that is common to our society. Uh, there's a brilliant book that has just appeared by a psych, uh, neuroscientist called Ian McGilchrist. It's called The Matter with Things. And he says the problem is that we so emphasize the analytical scientific side for the past four or five hundred years that we're left with a universe where we understand how almost everything works and we don't know the meaning of yes. anything. And in reading his work, our late brilliant rabbi, uh, Lord yeah. Jonathan Sachs, yeah. wrote the following sentence and then wrote a book about it. He said... Science takes things apart to see how they work. Religion puts them together to see what they mean. And I think that's a very brilliant. profound statement. So to end then, I'm picturing you here. Um, I was here yesterday as well. It was my first time at Oxford walking around the most kind of 
the oldest parts and thinking, you know, this is, this is, oh, you can get to Oxford, then you, you know, in some of the, and yet, I think feeling prayerfully this sense, this, this search for meaning, like what if, what if, what if everything works out that doesn't, that doesn't get you to meaning necessarily? No, this university has still got the motto, Dominus Illuminatio Bea, the Lord is my light. And the people that founded it didn't see any contradiction between faith in God and using their minds and science and the humanities. And that's exactly where I stand. And I think I felt that as I was walking. I was like, again, I don't want to project, but I was thinking, oh, there must be so much mental health difficulty here. Oh, there, are, there is, but it's true everywhere. But there certainly is among students and even professors. Yes. So then as we end, as you look out and you shared that you're like, 80th year, the kind of, um, what's, what's your hope and longing for, you know, young people walking by, being in this place, these neo-atheists you've engaged with? Well, my longing's clear for them to actually not only believe that there is a God, but to get to know him. And I think that there's evidence for that. And I want to spend my time writing, speaking, but mostly writing. Yeah. To communicate that you don't have to commit intellectual suicide to become a yes. Christian. But actually, you're not walking into the dark, you're taking a step into the light. Dr. Lennox, thank you so much. It has thank been you. a joy to speak with you. Um, we will, you know, your many books and conversations, people will, you'll, uh, I know many people know you already, but some of our listeners, it would be a first encounter. So mm -hmm. We saw new things. And, and I want to thank you again, I've already said it, for, for writing about humanity. Uh, one of the other things, this is going to feel a lot, that Jesus as the one true human, you know, this sense of exactly. uh, the fullness of humanity. Yes, is. the thing finally that convinces me that human beings are special is that God became one. Thank you. Thank you. Bless you. So grateful. Rector's Cupboard is a production of Reflector Project and is hosted and produced by Todd Weeb, Allison Williams, and Amanda Mina. Our cupboard master is Ken Bell. Rector's Cupboard is made possible by the generous support of donors. Check out rectorscupboard.ca for past episodes, events, and how you can help fund the podcast. You can also support Rector's Cupboard by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, which helps other people find us. Thanks for listening. <laughs>